You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role because that maternal child and health and nutrition... ...is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Public health experts are busy developing new strategies for the next era of global immunization. Among those efforts is a second version of the Global Vaccine Action Plan, or GVAP, which will cover the period 2021 to 2030. I'm Nellie Bristol, Senior Fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. In this episode of Take Us Directed, I speak with Kate Dotson, Vice President of Global Health at the United Nations Foundation, Carmen Tull, Chief of the Child Health and Immunizations Division at USAID, and Craig Burgess, Senior Technical Officer at the John Snow Training and Research Institute, to discuss the GVAP 2.0 process and explain why global goals are important to U.S. efforts in improving immunization coverage. Thank you all for being here. Kate, let's begin with you. Can you fill us in on the GVAP past and future? Sure, happy to, and happy to be here. Uh, So the Global Vaccine Action Plan was actually born out of a partnership effort called the Decade of Vaccines Collaboration that really was inspired at the turn of the you know, millennium and as we were seeing progress on the MDGs, seeing that more needed to be done to accelerate progress on immunization. We were starting to see some of the gains of immunization. You know, child mortality was starting to plummet in many countries, large part due to access to immunization, especially the measles vaccine. But it was felt that more needed to be done to generate and sustain political will at the highest levels uh, on immunization and to make sure that there was a global enabling environment that could really support countries' efforts and countries' plans to meet immunization targets. These plans, as Nellie, you already mentioned, related to uh, regional and global elimination of neonatal tetanus, of measles, global eradication of polio, and the kind of necessary supply management and development of new vaccines and technologies that would allow countries to meet the goals that they had laid out to introduce new immunizations, really significant immunizations like pneumococcal and rotavirus against the world's leading killers, uh, which was a cornerstone of the Gavi vaccine strategy at that point. So partners came together in this decade of vaccine collaboration, said we need to do more in a united front, cut across regions and geographies, cut across sectors, include civil society and the private sector together. Forming out of that decade of vaccine collaboration became the blueprint, which now is the Global Vaccine Action Plan. It was developed over a really uh, intense period of consultation in 2011 and into 2012. It was adopted by the World Health Assembly. All health ministries from around the world adopted this unanimously. A really important marker in trying to get that political will needed and that kind of global alignment needed to meet these ambitious goals in the next decade. But uh, as you already mentioned, Nellie, I think progress has been mixed in the last 
decade or the last, you know, nine, seven or eight years since the plan was officially adopted. While we have seen that more children, especially, have been immunized than ever before, um, we have fewer children unvaccinated or under-vaccinated now than we did 10 years ago, and to the tune of millions of kids whose lives have been saved, we are not meeting all the goals that were laid out in the Global Vaccine Action Plan. Uh, And that's now stimulated a new set of conversations. I think where were the genesis and the motive for GVAP 2.0, the next global vaccine action plan, is to try to make sure that we don't erode any political will gained and really actually try to accelerate that, but back that up with a more flexible, country-centric approach driven by innovations where we need them to make sure that countries better get the tools and support they need to meet them where they are in the immunization journey. And the job of the global plan is to help still provide that enabling framework, but really put countries in the center and in the driving seat throughout. And so that's, I think, where you're going to see some innovations and some different approaches in the next GVAP than where we have seen in the the current GVAP that we still have through the end of next year. Great, Kate. Can you talk a bit about who the original drivers were of GVAP? This came out of the Decade of Vaccine Collaboration, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, Gavi, the U.S. National Institutes of Health and Infectious Diseases, the Gates Foundation were all among the kind of core driving partners for the decade. Um, And ultimately, they were the ones who helped shepherd a broad-based coalition of partners. But the development of the GVAP actually rested on the shoulders of hundreds of different individuals and organizations who were a part of robust development and consultation over the course of about 18 months before the Global Vaccine Action Plan was officially uh, supported and endorsed at the World Health Assembly in 2012. And is this process similar to that? It is. And actually, it's not, you know, we there was a big meeting in Geneva two weeks ago, but that was just one marker in what already has been a set of conversations and work streams. Um, there's uh, There were 17 work streams with different partners involved, including civil society actors and some country actors, uh, in addition to some of the major technical partners, and trying to identify the parameters and what success looks like for this next decade. Um, and where we go from here is that, uh, you know, a, a There'll be a a set of country conversations, regional conversations over the course of the next five or six months in anticipation of a draft strategy that can be discussed at um, WHO's SAGE in October. But that's not the end of the road. As I said before, one of the recognitions is that we have to put countries more at the center of this next decade in the the plans and the strategies that surround and, and better support them. And so from the kind of uh, adoption of an anticipated World Health Assembly resolution um, in 2020 on a global plan, the anticipation is that regions will take forward their own strategies going forward. Only right now Africa, uh, through the um, work that's been done by WHO Afro, has that kind of a regional focus and a regional long-range 
strategy to help support and drive regional progress. So that is the next chapter and, and we'll make this process more than just one year. It'll be longer before we really get all the building blocks in place to support countries with, with the goals that they have in mind. Okay, great. And then just to clarify, so SAGE is the Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization, is a, a WHO, a World Health Organization expert panel. And and so this ultimately will be taken up by the WHA, the World Health Assembly, in next year, in next May in 2020. That's right. That's the intent. Okay, great. Um, Carmen, can you walk us through how USAID supports immunization systems globally and its role in developing this new plan? I think, uh, as many people know, USAID has been supporting immunization for more than 30 years. And currently, the messaging around USAID as sort of a broad agency goal is really our priority is to support countries on their journey to self-reliance. We see immunization systems strengthening as really a key component to support countries on this journey towards self-reliance. And we support immunization in several ways. First um, and foremost, since 2001, um, we have contributed over $2 billion to Gavi, but our contribution to Gavi, Gavi the- Vaccine Alliance, right? Um, the organization that's really, whose goal is really to provide new and underutilized vaccines to the countries that need them the most worldwide. Um, but in addition to support, to our support of Gavi, we work very closely with our bilateral health programs. Um, Through our maternal and child health programs, we work with partners such as JSI, with whom uh, Craig works, to really work hand-in-hand with governments to strengthen uh, immunization systems, build capacity, and ensure that the vaccines reach the the people who need them the most. In addition to that, we have an annual um, $59 million earmark for polio eradication, and as the world gets closer to eradicating wild polio virus, that, that earmark to date has largely focused on broad communication and surveillance. And we really look to, to leverage that investment in the future um, to benefit broad immunization strengthening and broader um, maternal and child health services um, more effectively. I, I think looking more specifically maybe at why USAID wants to be part of GVAP and where we think we can make the biggest difference. I'd have to say there are maybe three things that that come to mind. One key message coming out of GVAP 2.0, in addition to what Kate identified as this country-centric approach, was really this link and contribution to broader health and development goals. And we really see our value as a broad development agency with footprints in health and agriculture and trade, that, that our role is to make sure that as we move forward with this effort to link immunization to these broader health and development goals that we can serve as a platform through which some of these these messages and programs can be carried forward. I I also think that as a contributor to Gavi, as the Vaccine Alliance, who is also going through a new strategy development process, what they're calling Gavi 5.0, to really look at what the strategic focus should be between the years 2021 in um, 2021 and 2025, um, I think uh as a contributor to Gavi, uh, it is our interest to make sure these three efforts, the Gavi 5.0 strategy, this broader GVAP 2.0 strategy, and this 
strategic development of the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. They're developing another strategy in terms of what's called the end game of polio eradication and what we do post-wild virus um, certification. We see a lot of potential synergies among the development of these three strategies. And as a contributor to, contributor to all three strategic developments, we want to make sure sort of the U.S. investment um, really is leveraged appropriately and that each um, strategic entity is really working on its comparative advantage. And we definitely see a role for the for, um, the post-2030 or I guess post-2020 uh, immunization agenda to be clear as to what Gavi's value added is, but realizing that Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, can't do everything, that there's a role for other partners to help in terms of uh, immunization system strengthening, and we want to make sure that that's clearly articulated. Great, Carmen. So can you talk about, so how does the U.S., so if you have these global goals, what do they mean for the U.S.? Is it just sort of an overarching umbrella under which everybody kind of contributes, or how, how does the U.S. view those goals in terms of immunization? Sure. I mean, I think what's helpful about these global goals is every country is committing to them. So if we take a country-centric approach, we have our priority countries that receive U.S. government funding to help improve overall maternal and child health indicators. But if the countries themselves have committed to these global goals, that helps us to shape and ensure that our money at the country level is filling potential gaps or helping countries achieve what they've already identified that they want to achieve in the in the space of immunization. I think another thing that, that came out very clearly in the, the GVAP 2.0 uh, meeting that took place that Kate referenced is this idea of accountability. And, and I still am a firm believer in sort of these global goals um, that countries commit to help us ensure that we're being accountable to one another to, to achieving them. So that there's definitely great benefit into having global goals and targets, which we all come together and commit to. Craig, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences and how you view these goals from your vantage point as an implementer of some of these programs in the countries? So we talked a lot about GVAP. And um, I think many people see that GVAP1, that was the last 10 years, have been successful in many different ways. Successful at global level in terms of supporting the market shaping and increasing the demand for vaccines and also increasing the awareness of the power of vaccines, the power of vaccines to prevent disease, obviously, but also the power of the delivery system to deliver other things. And one of the main um, kind of results of GVAP in terms of successful indicators is the introduction of new vaccines, new and emerging diseases, and making vaccines available to countries that otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford them, for example. So that specific indicator and objective has definitely been a big plus for, uh, for GVAP. And if we reflect a bit on kind of the last 20 years before GVAP, um, the other big success that kind of these global goals can get is the essence of delivery system, how an immunization system is based on practical logistics, community demand, supportive supervision, and may sound boring, but microplanning, microplanning at health facility level, district level, and national level to really make sure the building blocks of the health system are strong enough to deliver vaccines in a, in a coherent way. And I think... Having said that, um, one of the things that perhaps didn't work so well in GVAP and is definitely a focus now moving ahead in the next sort of 10 years is really putting countries 
uh, ownership first and foremost, and even beyond countries, making sure that people, people and communities are there. So I, I work with the civil society constituency um, quite extensively, and I think we firmly believe that the civil society constituency represents the ultimate beneficiary or the ultimate customer um, that I, we, we believe people should be listening to, especially those that are in um, places that perhaps don't have uh, strong government systems and perhaps need vaccines the most. They are popular populations with the greatest disease burden, populations living, for example, in fragile settings, fragile due to conflict or fragile due to displacement from natural disasters, or increasingly in the next 10 years, climate change, or populations living in urban poor circumstances that have recently migrated, or the rural remote poor. Those kind of communities and engagement with those communities are going to become increasingly important in the next 10 years, because we feel that engaging communities and partnering with them, that's governments and agencies and NGOs making sure they're partnering with the communities makes um, services more appropriate, acceptable and therefore more sustainable. And one of the ways in which we feel um, to do that is really to look at social contracts, perhaps, or an accountability mechanism where governments and partners are a lot more accountable to communities rather than just the donors. So it's a kind of two-way two -way street. So it's placing them first and foremost, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be very difficult. It's challenging. If it was, if it was easy, it would have been done by now. But we feel there's a lot of, a lot of ways in which partners and within this framework partnership with civil society and private sector can look at innovative ways of delivering vaccines and other health services into hard to reach populations in innovative ways through partnerships through new ways of working as well putting people at the center can you give some examples of that have you seen that work yeah i mean i think there's a few examples in some of the asian countries that we've worked in where there's contracting between strong governments usually who have the mechanism by which they can contract NGOs, civil society groups to actually deliver. So there's a contractor contract team mechanism where there's clear expectations, clear roles and responsibilities and clear metrics to um, to measure. And that works relatively well. And we're also in different circumstances in countries where Gavi works, that works relatively well as well. Beyond that, in the last sort of five years, there's been a lot of um, emphasis on getting good governance platforms up and running. So Gavi's helped stimulate a kind of platform across large numbers of Francophone Africa, for example, and other um, African and Asian countries to really strengthen the representation of civil society communities and implementing NGOs at different levels of the system. And I think there's been a mixed mixed results with that, some very good, strong results, and not so good. Um, but in, in future years, we believe that that's going to need supported. If, if civil society is going to play its watchdog role and make sure that... You know, people are held accountable to um, uh, to the ultimate beneficiary. There needs to be a strong support in terms of um, platforms that support that. The other thing I'd like to say is, I think in the next ten years, <clears throat> between the balance between specific disease initiatives, like such as polio or measles or tetanus, um, which are very important. And um, I think everybody is everybody believes in them. Um, they, through a polio transition and other plans, need to link as strongly as possible to the delivery mechanisms that are broader than just campaigns, for example. So strengthening routine immunization and routine immunization leading the way for primary health care and delivering other health care interventions is important. So we're aware, for example, in, in Madagascar, in Nepal, in Ethiopia, I think there's some good examples by the institute that I work with, the JSI Research Training 
Training and Research Institute, um, where we've, we've delivered a lot of those programs and supported mainly through AID funding, but through other donors as well, that have helped promote that more holistic lifestyle approach that makes sure vaccines and vaccine delivery are at the heart of primary health care and communities are driving those, some of those changes. Great. So back to the, the CSO platforms, and you said some have worked well and some haven't. Is it personality driven that some of them work or what? what is the what's the key there would you say digging down into the term kind of personality i would i would i would like to kind of put it out there it's more about leadership and governance with entities in many of the countries that we work with if you have strong leaders especially female leaders who are empowered to kind of lead an ngo and actually is welcomed to the decision making table at local levels and national levels where there's not only a tick the box oh we've just engaged civil society where there's a real spirit of engagement and a welcoming of like hey you represent the women's groups or you represent the religious leaders or you represent the community leaders we want to hear how best we can serve you that works a lot more effectively but there needs to be a sense of empowerment and welcoming not just for plans and strategies which we all know can go in the bottom drawer, but also about budget, uh, budgeting, mm. implementing and monitoring and helping as the plans get implemented, there's a, an, an ability to learn and change strategies and plans as, as, um, as countries' plans move along. And then I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about market shaping because you, you use that term. What does that mean exactly? So um, it's It's the balance between supply and demand. So supply just now is obviously coming from vaccine manufacturers that are pulled largely in many countries, low and middle income countries, through the Gavi Alliance. Um, which makes which makes vaccines more affordable for countries that otherwise couldn't afford them. And it increases the demand. So the demand needs to come from there. So to demand from communities involves a huge range of trust. And trust is at the heart of demand by communities. And that trust, if you can picture a young a young uh, woman who's just given birth and wants to take her newborn baby to the vaccine clinic that she might not know where it is. She might not know the clinic, but she's aware that someone's going to stick a needle into her precious baby. And there might be a bit of a fever afterwards, but it will protect the baby for life from many different diseases. That takes a leap of faith and a trust which can easily be broken, very easily be broken. So the market shaping in terms of demand relies right at grassroots level of that wanting the demand for vaccines, the demand for health that can be placed on health systems, either through partners or through governments, that can then look at increasing the availability of vaccines in terms of numbers, but also in terms of the variety of vaccines that are available to different populations as well, specifically for certain segments of the population. For example, JE, Japanese encephalitis, or cholera, or there are other vaccines that are specific for for certain communities. So balancing that demand with supply is important to have a healthy market and can stimulate other manufacturers, especially from low and middle income countries, to come into the market and supply vaccines with high quality, which is important, but perhaps at at a reduced cost for the ultimate beneficiary. So having a healthy market is important. And we're aware of recently there's been shortages at global level of IPV, that's the injectable polio vaccine, rotavirus and HPV vaccine, for example, where demand has gone up but actually the supply isn't there. So keeping a healthy market requires both suppliers and those that are ordering vaccines to kind of be in, be in a, a constant dynamic. Um, so stimulating ge- generation of demand is important, but also suppliers obviously need to, need to step up when, when they can. It's, it's very difficult because they, re- they also rely on accurate forecasting, which is very difficult to predict as well. 
So um, just the last question for each of you, if you can talk a little bit about the, the measles outbreaks that are going on globally, if you have any thoughts about, you were talking about demand, so like, and this, um, the issue of vaccine hesitancy, um, thoughts on how to tackle that. Um, maybe we can start with you, Kate, if you have any thoughts. Sure. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing in measles is, you know, they call measles the canary in the coal mine because it is the sign that you're not reaching um, high levels of coverage with immunization. It is among the most contagious diseases there are. Um, But how, as a global partnership, for instance, as we're working as the measles and rubella initiative, of which the UN Foundation is a founding partner, One of the things that we're trying to focus on really is actually building and meeting demand and access challenges um, instead of just thinking about hesitancy. Uh, the reality is, is that one in five people, one in five children who whose parents want a measles vaccine for their child is not able to get it and not able to get that access. And that is actually what's fueling more outbreaks and more, um, more causes of measles cases than hesitancy is. And if you can reach those children where they are, and there are a variety of reasons why people are not able to um, have access to immunization from fragile contexts, as uh, Craig was pointing out earlier, to displacement and conflict, um, like Venezuela, where immunization systems were strong for quite some time. But when new birth cohorts arrive as public health systems erode and primary health care systems erode, you can really easily start to see cases of measles. So we are still focused, again, on improving access um, as the most important way that we can reduce the number of outbreaks and the number of measles cases and the, mor- and the mortality caused by measles. Hesitancy is a challenge. Hesitancy is not just about those that you see on social media or otherwise kind of in an anti-vax frame. It's those who also, for instance, may not have a level of trust or security with their healthcare provider, where healthcare providers don't feel like they are empowered with the right set of information to allow people to make informed choices about immunization. So it is multifaceted, the, the, the challenge of hesitancy. Um, and, you know, although it's a, it is especially challenging now as we're seeing measles cases spike all over the world and in all WHO regions of the world, um, it actually is a way to make sure that we can elevate this urgency for improving access and, and that people can see when people see it in the headlines, um, we hope that they'll continue to remain a part of the fight and making sure that people do get the access they need. Craig, some thoughts um, on that? Yeah, I've got three main points in my answer. One is often in many countries there's a sense of complacency. Complacency because people haven't seen the diseases that are vaccine prevented for a long time. So if you're not aware of it, it's not as if you're living with a disease, you're preventing a disease. It's a very different mentality in terms of actually, oh, there may be more side effects of the vaccine than the disease, which is simply not true. We all know that. But those kind of messages get across. So a sense of complacency. The second thing I was thinking about was really um, many of the ways in which we get our information is based on first-hand experience with friends, 
family, rumours, and are not necessarily um, based on fact. And increasingly, uh, from a global level, there's this sort of anti-science type of movement and anti-accurate um, information where we get more and more of our information through algorithms, through social media, for example, which may not be true. And there, there, there's very little in the way of kind of fact-checking and um, an integral kind of part of the integrity of what we're what we're reading is often false. So getting and dealing with those rumors is difficult. Um, and I, I would say it's getting the right message at the right time to the right people. And when I say right people, each person and each group of people have a very different way of understanding and dealing and changing their behavior to better understand the power of something like vaccines. So it's a very differentiated type of market segment approach when trying to deal with, uh, with, with messaging facts that often may not, uh, may not be so appealing as a kind of a, um, a human interest story, for example. My last thought was certainly in many of the lower middle income countries, as, as Kate's mentioned, it's about increasing access to the vaccine itself. And measles, um, for those that don't know, are usually delivered in two, two doses, one at nine months and one at 18 months, um, which is um, in some countries when the vaccine is introduced is only kind of introduced through a campaign. Um, and that's great for getting up immunity to a certain level. But you need to be aware that measles vaccines are delivered. The vast majority of vaccines are delivered through the routine immunization system. So to get the routine immunization system to deliver coherently on a day-to-day basis, month after month, year after year, takes a very strong linkage with kind of the health system and the ability of the health system to deliver those vaccines to children in the next few years through the routine immunization system. So it needs to move kind of beyond campaign, although campaigns are important. We need both. Um, through perhaps a human-centered design, tailoring needs to the most vulnerable. So like I was saying yesterday, sorry, before, um, the populations in fragile contexts, urban, poor, and rural, remote, really looking at how you can design a program with their needs in bearing them in mind, first of all, when you're designing a routine immunization system. Thanks. And, and maybe just to add, although I agree very much with what Kate and Craig have said, I mean, we remain alarmed with the number of measles outbreaks, especially in our MCH priority countries. And building off of a point that Craig said, we also see it as somewhat concerning when people assume, oh, we, we, we've made it in routine immunization. It doesn't need additional attention. And we're using these measles outbreaks also to engage in dialogue with our missions, to, to really see see what more can we be doing at that bilateral level to strengthen routine systems, especially in the in the area of immunization, to prevent these outbreaks from the start. On the issue of hesitancy, I think I, I remain somewhat concerned when we when we think that we can address hesitancy from a global level. I really think that the approaches need to be adapted and tailored to even the most micro-level context. And there's a lot of push and energy around Addressing hesitancy, which I think is important, but I think we need to get that tailored messaging really down to communities where we, we've seen them. And there isn't one sort of approach that's going to work overall. It's going to take multiple different tailored strategies to actually address this issue of hesitancy uh, collectively. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take Us Directed, featuring Kate Dodson, Carmen Tall, and Craig Burgess. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. If you want to learn more about upcoming events and our work, please visit the CSIS Global Health Policy Center program page.